Savior, to follow after the shepherd of the church, our Lord Jesus Christ, and the Savior of our souls. Father, we want Jesus Christ to be Lord of our homes and our families, and we want to be encouraged today from your word. And so, um, as you have done so often, even right here in this room with our Bibles opened, your Holy Spirit has taken your word, implanted it in our hearts, and clarified it in our minds, and helped us implement it into everyday living. Do that again, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I thought in honor of um, nothing going as planned quite last night and trying to have a camp out in the rain that I would read a letter that I've read before here uh, from a a Boy Scout. Um, I think he was part of Trail Life and he wrote a letter home to his mom and dad from a camp out. Goes like this. Dear mom and dad, we're having a great time here at Lake Typhoid. Our scoutmaster is making all of us write our parents in case you saw the flood on TV and got worried. We are okay. Only one of our tents and two of our sleeping bags and Jake's backpack got washed away. Luckily, none of us drowned because we were all up on the mountain looking for Brad when it happened. Oh yeah, please, tell, please call Brad's mom and tell her he is okay. He can't write because he's in a cast. I got to ride in one of the I got to ride in one of the search and rescue jeeps. It was neat. We never would have found him if it hadn't been for all the lightning. Our our scoutmaster got mad at Brad for going on a hike alone without telling anyone. Brad said he did tell him, but it was during the fire, so he probably didn't hear him. <laughs> said Did you know that if you pour gas on a fire, the gas can will blow up? The wet wood still didn't burn, but one of our tents did, and also some of our clothes. John is going to look weird until his hair and eyebrows grow back. We will be home Saturday if our scoutmaster gets the bus fixed. It wasn't his fault about the wreck. The The brakes worked okay when we left. Our scoutmaster said that with a bus that old, you have to expect something to break down, and that's probably why he can't get insurance on it. (laughs) But we think it's a neat bus, and he doesn't care if we get dirty. It gets pretty hot in the bus, but it, it is really neat because we can watch the engine work, although it does smell like exhaust fumes. Our scoutmaster even let us take turns riding on the luggage rack on top, too. Well... That is until the highway patrolman stopped and talked to him. (laughs) Our scoutmaster is a neat scoutmaster. Don't worry, he's a good driver. In fact, he's teaching Andrew how to drive. But he only lets him drive the bus on the mountain roads where there isn't any traffic. All we ever see up here are logging trucks. This morning, all of us were jumping off the rocks and swimming in the lake. Our scoutmaster wouldn't let me because I can't swim and... Brad was afraid he would, and Brad, because he was afraid he would sink because of the cast. So he let us take the canoe across the lake. It was great. You can still see some of the trees under the water from the flood. Our scoutmaster isn't crabby like some scoutmasters. He didn't even get mad about the life jackets we forgot. He has, he has to spend a lot of time working on the bus, so we are trying not to cause him any trouble. And guess what? We all learned some first aid. When Keith dove off the cliff into the lake and cut his arm, we got to see how a tourniquet works. 
Also, Aaron and I threw up. Our scoutmaster said it was probably just food poisoning from the leftover tuna salad that we had the night when we first got here. He said, he said they got sick that way with the food they ate in prison. He said, he said, I'm so glad he got out and became our scoutmaster. <laughs> I have to go now. We're going to town and mail all these letters and buy some bullets. (laughs) Don't worry about anything. Love, your son. P.S. How long has it been since I had a tetanus shot? I just always love Scoutmaster Webb. I think he's great. Well, if you turn to Mark's Gospel in chapter 9, it's not a boy and a Scoutmaster. It's a boy and his dad that we want to look at. And they're not having nearly as much fun as all the guys up on the mountain with Scoutmaster Webb. We're challenging the men of our church today, especially those who still have active roles as fathers or grandfathers. You might say, Pastor Van, that's just one slice or demographic of our church. I want to tell you this. I believe with all my heart that if we have strong, godly men in our church, we'll have strong, godly women and children in our church. But just because we have strong, godly women and children in our church, which we do, doesn't necessarily mean we'll have strong, godly men. I also am trusting the Holy Spirit, as he does in that marvelous way, of taking his word and helping you, those who have Christ as their Savior, the Holy Spirit works actively in you. And so when the word of God is preached, it will apply to your life. But I'm especially sensitive to dads today, and we're looking at three different dads Last night, we looked at the heart of a father, and we looked at Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 in that most interesting, sort of boring chapter of genealogy in chapter 5, and how he stood out where every other one of the men in the passage died, but Enoch was taken up, and that he had a heart for God, an undivided heart for God, in a world that was shaping up to be destroyed a few generations later. There in Genesis 5, Enoch was a man who walked with God. And we need dads who walk with God, who have an undivided heart for God in our homes and in our church. This morning, John, Mark chapter 9 is an account that's in Matthew and Luke. But Mark, actually the shortest gospel, gives us the most detail about this interesting story. We want to look at this morning the love of a father. Last night, the heart of a father This session, the love of a father. Later on at 11 o'clock, the voice of a father. Really, it's like this. Someday when dads are gone, and you do know, the last lesson that a father gets to teach his family is usually how to go to heaven because he's usually the first to go in the family. When we're gone and our children and our families think of us, we want them to remember what kind of heart we had. And we want them to remember what kind of love we had for our family and for Christ. And we want them to hear our voice in their memories the rest of their lives. The heart of a father, the love of a father, and the voice of a father. Let's read our text. It's Mark's Gospel in chapter 9. We begin with verse 14. And what an interesting and emotional story it is. And, and when they came to the disciples... Okay, let me just stop even right there. And when they came... If you would realize the context, what happens is you have Peter, James, and John 
with Jesus up on the Mount of Transfiguration, and they've been away from the rest. So when they came to the rest of the disciples, it's the three and our Lord coming to join the nine disciples who were left behind from when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration and had that incredible worship experience and saw our Lord glorified by the Father. By the way, feel free to turn your chairs and face this way. And when they came to the disciples, so the three and our Lord came to the nine disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Scribes were theologians. They were experts in doctrine. And the disciples, the nine disciples and the, with scribes around them are bickering. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, that's Jesus, were greatly amazed and they ran up to him and greeted him. At this point in his ministry, our Lord has renown, and everywhere he goes, he draws a crowd. If you thumb back through the rest of previous passages in Mark, you see that he's already healed the blind and, and healed the lame, and, he's, and everywhere he goes, he's drawing a crowd. And so the crowd, when they were watching this argument, this bickering between the scribes and the nine disciples, then Jesus is coming down the trail. They turn and they run to Jesus, and they're amazed. They get to see him. They were wondering where he was. And he asked them as they ran up to him, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And when it seizes him, it throws him down and he foams at the mouth and he grinds his teeth and he becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able Verse 19, and he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. Speaking of the boy. Verse 20, and they brought the boy to him, and when the spirit saw him immediately, it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground, and he rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it is often cast, it has often cast him into the fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe and help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, and he lifted him up, and he arose and when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast him out, cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Wow. What an incredible story. If you're following along in your notes, we recognize immediately that we see in the story a father who is urgently seeking He's urgently seeking and he's seeking what? He's looking for help. He's looking for answers we recognize right away that there's a boy and he, he loves his son. I thought it was notable. I didn't have a place in your notes to mark it, but 
To me, it's notable that the father is taking the lead on seeking answers for his boy. So often in a situation like this, you feel like the mother is the one who's so concerned and so brokenhearted and seeking answers. And the dad, he's, he loves his son, but he's preoccupied. And I love it in the story that this dad, the mother's never even mentioned, but this father has taken his son and he's trying to find Jesus and he's seeking for answers and help for his boy. We recognize right away in the story, Mark gives us an account It's interesting to me that Mark is the most condensed of the Gospels, and yet in some of these occasions, he gives the greatest amount of detail. Mark wasn't really an eyewitness. It's possible that he saw some things. Most Bible students believe that Mark carefully recorded Peter's account of following Christ. Mark would have been much younger. Evidently, Peter sat around and talked a lot about these stories. And a lot like me and my Uncle Bud sitting around a fire up on the Yukon and him telling us stories about flying planes back in 1948 and all kinds of things. I can remember his voice in my mind and him telling those great stories of the wild bush of Alaska in the 40s and 50s and 60s. Mark could remember Peter's voice in his mind and he wrote down these details carefully and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But we have a boy who's got a physical problem It had to be some form of epilepsy. It's obviously some form of epilepsy. It has all of the symptoms of this boy having grand mal seizures. Grand mal seizures are the kind of seizures that involves loss of consciousness completely and violent muscle contractions. How frightening it must have been. This boy, we don't know how old he was. Let's picture him maybe a 12-year-old boy, 10, 11, 12-year-old boy. You know, some of you who've experienced children with seizures, you know that they'll often get worse before they find answers. And it's likely that that this little boy had been having seizures since his childhood. And even now, his seizures were such that they overwhelmed the family. Secondly, we see that it's not only a physical problem, but repeatedly in the passage, it talks about the fact that demons are involved. We don't know how this works completely, but often in our New Testament, don't we see in the time frame of our Lord Jesus that there's demonic activity and often the demons were able to physically afflict people. We have some incredible pictures for us. The crazy man at Gadaree is one of my favorite stories in all the New Testament. Living naked among the tombs, powerful from the demons. And he had a legion of demons in him and he was sick in the mind and, and he was just overwhelmed. And we see repeatedly where in this time frame, people who had problems, evidently there was some physical issue, but also there was evidently demonic possession. What a horrible picture is painted by Mark here. In this scenario. And so this father has come to the disciples and we see what happened is the disciples who were beginning to have power to do miracles in response to their uh, over-shepherd, our Lord Jesus, they were able to do, accomplish great things in the ministry with Christ. But evidently they had tried to cast out the demon. They had tried to heal this boy. And the scribes were watching, always critical of Jesus, always critical of the disciples. And they saw that it was ineffective. Jesus is nowhere to be found. Well, he's up on the mount still. And so the scribes were evidently kind of like vultures coming in there. Na-na-na-na-na-na, hissing. 
You can't do that. And the disciples, of course, men, proud, they didn't want to act like they failed. So they're arguing back. And you evidently have this scenario where scribes and Pharisees are really going at it. And it's drawn a crowd. We want to see the brawl here. It's kind of like the dugouts have emptied and everybody wants a piece of somebody. And Jesus comes walking up on this. The crowd turns their attention to Jesus. He begins to talk to the man. And we're down at verse uh, 16, 17, 18, 17. Someone from the crowd answered him. So the man spoke up, Teacher, I brought my son to you and for he has a spirit that makes him mute. He explains to him about the foaming, the grinding of teeth, foaming of the mouth, the muscle rigidity. And so I asked your disciples to cast it out and they were not able. Jesus makes a, what evidently is a spontaneous response directed at his disciples. Oh, you have little faith. In other words, evidently Jesus, at this point in his teaching ministry and shepherding ministry of his disciples, expected them to have enough faith and enough understanding and belief in who he was that they should have been able to handle the situation. And so I can almost see him rolling his eyes, can't you? Oh, you guys, come on. You have little faith. I wonder how many times our Lord looks at us and says, oh, you have little faith. Come on. I've given you my authority, my powerful word the indwelling Holy Spirit, and you act like you have no ability to stand. So Jesus says, oh, you have little faith. How long am I going to be with you? He was longing for the completion of his earthly ministry. I have to put up with you guys. Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw Jesus, as is often the case, they go into fits. The demons react to the presence of Christ. I've heard of guys dealing with demonically possessed people even today. I've had only a little bit of an encounter with it, a little bit with some youth in Martinsburg years ago, and a little bit of observation in a bush village of Africa. And when Jesus' name is talked about, the people start to shriek. And it seems that the demons, they, they, know, who, they know that name. And the spirit saw him and immediately it convulsed the boy and he fell on the ground and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he says, pitifully, from childhood. Number two, what we see in our story is we see a home terribly disrupted by this. And we can only imagine, can't we? What it must have been like from early childhood when the mama looked at this little boy and she realized, she said to her husband, Jenk, Something's not right with this kid. Come look at him. Do you think his eyes are okay? Now look at him, snapping their fingers. And remember it said that he was deaf and mute. And so evidently somewhere in early childhood when he was supposed to be making sounds, sounds didn't come out of his mouth normally, maybe a few guttural grunts. And so the mother realizes something's wrong with my boy and... And this epilepsy and this demonic possession of this child for some reason, it caused him to be unable to speak and unable to hear. And so it was so disruptive to this home. This is the point where I love it that this father has stepped in and is trying to help resolve it. Maybe the mother isn't there. She might be there, but maybe she's just worn out. It is a man's world, and so he's taking the lead to lead him to a group of men. By the way, in Luke 9's account, Luke 9, 32, 38, Luke 9, 38, 
It gives us a little more detail of information, and it says there that this boy was the man's only son. So the boy might have had some sisters, but it was the father's only son. A couple of you guys can relate to that, how all these girls come along, and then the boy comes along, and how special the boy is to dad. It's not that the girls aren't special. So the home was terribly disrupted, and we see that the boy is severely hurting. There's a boy who's severely hurting, and it breaks our heart. You can look at the verses, and we've seen it, that he's got these epileptic fits as well as demonic oppression. The boy absolutely couldn't control himself. There was nothing they could do about it. We see then in verse 22, a father humbly begging. This guy, he doesn't care what it takes His son is all that matters to him. And he comes and he's begging Jesus, begging the disciples and begging Jesus, will you please, please help me with my son? Look at verse 22. He says, it is often cast him into the fire. So the boy evidently maybe even had scars on his skin. Thrown him into water. On occasion, the father had had to jump into the water some kind of a well, some kind of a cistern, some kind of a little tributary or stream. And they turned their back just for a second in conversation and heard the splash and the boys in the water, under the water. The fathers had to go in and grab him and pull him out, seeking to destroy him. And he says, but if you can do anything, would you please have compassion on us and help us? It's not a bad prayer except for the opening part of it. If you can do anything, but he says, would you please have compassion and would you help us? We don't know what to do. I have an idea. There's been some parents and some dads and moms in this room that have been in that situation before. You can probably identify even with the first part of the phrase, can't you? If you can help us. And look at Jesus' response. It's not even in my Bible. In the ESV, it ends with an, with an exclamation point. I try to make it a question. If you can, but no, it's if you can. It's a response. It's a, it's a rebuttal. <laughs> what do you mean, if you can? It's like, you know who you're talking to? You're talking to Superman and Batman all wrapped up in one. So what do you mean, if you can? The Lone Ranger, you don't tug the mask off the old Lone Ranger. Look, what do you mean, if we can? I'm the king of the universe. Do you know that I spoke a word and all this came to be? Do you know that I can think a thought and make it change? Do you know that everything holds together and the earth goes around the sun? It does, doesn't it? The earth goes around the sun because I spoke it to do that. Who are you talking to, man? If you can... And then he turns the table immediately and he looks at the man and he says, all things are possible for one who believes. In Matthew's passage, it goes into the section on if you had faith like a grain of mustard seed, you'd be able to move a mountain. We had a message on that. You can look it up on the internet. I think it was a really good message. But um, it has to do with the fact that he's not talking about not using bulldozers and backhoes to excavate real mountains. He's speaking spiritually speaking. And the, the reality of the fact is that we have a Lord who can accomplish anything. And our job is to believe in him. Not to consider the mountain, but to consider the Lord. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And then immediately, notice, so the father 
moves from humbly begging in verse 22 to by 24, the father is honestly admitting that he needs faith. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe. And then he says, help my unbelief. Boy, have you ever felt conflicted like that? Lord, I believe that you can answer prayer. Lord, I know that you can help me. But Lord, would you just give me the faith to really keep believing this? I mean, stop and think about the context. How he knows nothing but the norm of a broken boy for many years. I'm sure they've prayed. I'm sure they've gone to the temple. I'm sure they've asked their priests to pray. But all they know is dealing with this every day, dealing with the noise in the middle of the night and go in there and there he is foaming at the mouth and rigid and almost dying and holding him down and shaking him and helping him calm down. And it's all they know. Lord, I believe you can solve this problem in my house, but Lord, it's all I know. Would you help me to really have the faith to believe? Because in our heart and in our humanity, what do we think? It will never change. This problem will never be solved. It's too bad. It's too horrible. What does he say? He honestly admits, Lord, I believe, but Lord, help mine unbelief. And here's the part. Here's the hero of the story. Here's the the happy ending. And it's our Lord mercifully responding. Mercifully responding. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Isn't it merciful? Don't even just come out, but don't you ever come back here. Leave these people once and for all. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out and the boy was like a corpse so that most of them said, he is dead. Jesus, but Jesus took him by the hand and he lifted him up and he arose. I, evidently the boy wasn't dead. It's possible that he was. On more than one occasion, our Lord had taken a child by the hand and raised him up off their deathbed. But he appeared to be dead, evidently just all but took the life of the boy and he was even, hadn't even gasped for breath. Our Lord takes him by the hand and he rose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples then privately asked him, Lord, why couldn't we do this? And so we have disciples privately asking for answers. We began the story with a father seeking answers. We end the story with disciples asking our Lord for answers and explanation. Lord, why couldn't we do this? Why couldn't we do this? And he looks at him and he says, this kind of demon only comes out with much prayer. Other passages mentioned and fasting. Much prayer. In other words... Evidently, sometimes when we have a problem and we want God to solve that problem and we begin to pray and we have faith that God's going to deal with it, some problems get solved more easily and more directly in answer to prayer than others. And it is possible that the forces of darkness and the conflict of light and darkness and, the, and Satan's scheme with the entire world 
And with the world of darkness versus the world of light that is unseen to us, but that we know about from God's word, that sometimes we have to keep plowing, man. You got to stay with it because this is a problem not easily solved. And I think we could take the microphone around the tables now. And we could say, tell us about a time when you had a problem and you prayed and God solved it. Oh, yeah, man, let me tell you, we needed a refrigerator. We didn't have any money. And we prayed and the phone rang. And on the other end was Lonnie Anderson. And he said, do you need a refrigerator? And we were like, man, did God answer prayer? It was great. And then we go to another table and they put their head down and they say, you know, we got a kid that's on drugs and we can't we can't find answers. And he foams at the mouth and he gets rigid and he's a mess. And we've been praying and praying. And I want to tell you, this one only comes out by much prayer. Evidently, we need to expect the fact that there are certain levels and depths of problems that affect our homes that, that a little bit of prayer doesn't solve it. A little bit of faith doesn't solve it. So let's look to application of the passage. Number one, the greatest priority, the greatest priority that you have, dads and everybody else, is to bring your child to Jesus Christ. I love the model of this guy. I love the model of the dad wanting to solve the problems in his home, and so he brings him to Jesus. And I recognize that some of you have brought your children to Jesus and they have turned and run from Jesus. You've done everything you could. Bring that child to Jesus. If you have younger, more impressionable children, the stupidest idea, the stupidest parenting concept I've ever heard of, and don't admit it if you've bought into this, just change your thinking, is, well, I want my child to decide for himself. That is the most ignoramus, unbiblical, stupid thing a parent can ever say. It's like, what else are you going to teach your child to hunt rabbits like that? You're going to teach your child to snow ski like that? Just go up and figure it out, kid. And the most important thing in the world that you can do is you can bring your child to Jesus Christ. I want to say that words are not enough, and you have to live it daily. You have to live it daily. I want you to raise your hand if you're a perfect dad out here this morning. I am a perfect dad. Yeah, get in. If you're a dad, you got issues, boy. (laughs) I am a perfect dad. You might have a perfect dad. There's no perfect dads. No perfect dads. So how do you live it? So I lost my temper. So I grumbled about going to Sunday school in the car one morning, and I undermined the, the elevating Christ and teaching at our church in front of my little kids. What do you do? I'll tell you what you do. You find that moment when your child will let you into their life for a minute, and you say, hey, buddy, Dad needs to talk to you right now. And I need to tell you that I really failed. Maybe you snapped at their mother. You say, I got to tell you that I sinned against your mother and I sinned against the Lord and I've asked the Lord to forgive me and I want to ask you to forgive me. And then you say, will you please forgive me? And then you be quiet and let them process. You tell them how much you love them and you tell them that you want to pray together and that dad's going to keep growing in Christ. And though a righteous man falls seven times, he rises up again. It's what you do. And you keep at it. None of this arrogant, I'm the king of this house, blah, blah, blah. Get up and serve your family 
and model living for Christ on a daily basis. The most important thing you can do, apart from leaving behind a testimony of faith in Jesus Christ, is to bring your children to Christ. Secondly, the hardest reality is that you can't change your child. The hardest reality we have to deal with as dads, excuse me, is like the man in our story. We can't change our kids. And no two kids are wired up the same way, are they? And what a challenge it is. And everything we did with these kids, they turned out so great. And now there's this other younger kid, and man, everything we do with him, it just goes nuts. You're not 100% convinced he doesn't have demons in him. (laughs) The hardest reality is that you can't change your child, but you can love them unconditionally. Love them unconditionally. By the way, be careful in loving your child that you don't accommodate the sin in their lives. We don't facilitate or accommodate sin in the name of loving our child. And so sometimes a dad has to have a tough love. He has to tell a boy, there's some things that aren't going to be in our house. There's some things that aren't going to be in our garage. There's some things that aren't going to happen on our property. I want to tell you, I love you, son. I love you with all my heart. You're breaking my heart, but this ain't going to happen at our house. And you're the dad, and you, you oversee your property, your home. Don't take a ball bat to him if you, if you can avoid it. <laughs> but don't accommodate sin in the life of your children in the name of love. It's not loving to provide safe space for kids to sin. That is not loving. You can love your child unconditionally, and you know what? Your children will know whether your love is unconditional or not, even if they treat you horribly. Secondly, you can live Christ before your child consistently. You can live Christ before your child consistently. I mean, at the least, your children need to see dad getting up and going to church. Why don't they see you going to Sunday school? Do they ever see you read our daily bread in the morning with your cup of coffee? Or do you just have the sports channel on? What do they see in your life? I'm not saying you can't do the things you enjoy, fixing up a car, making the yard look good, go bow hunting, have a garden, have a cool tractor, go to the fair, win the hay bale tossing contest or whatever. You don't, we don't walk around, a godly dad doesn't walk around humming, monastery-like, I'm in the Word, I'm Christ-like. That's utter nonsense. But characterized, characterizing my life and embedded in the daily routines of my life, my children see that Jesus Christ is first in my life. That the Word of God is precious to me. That I can actually quote a couple Bible verses Ain't that something, dads? And my children can see that I know my Bible well enough, I don't have to use the index to find the book of the Bible. Now, keep using it till you figure it out. You understand what I'm saying? Live it out. Live it out. The way you talk about a mean neighbor, the way you talk about your boss, the way you love your wife, the children's mother in front of them, Live it out, and you can pray for your child confidently. You can pray confidently. It's hard, especially on the hard nuts. 
Until you are convinced that you can't change your child's heart, you will not take prayer seriously. Paul Miller is the author of the book that the ladies' Bible study is going to be studying prayer on Wednesday nights. I was thumbing through it and I saw that quote and I thought, that's a good quote. Until you are convinced that you cannot change your child's heart, you will not take prayer seriously. But the day it dawns on you that I can't change this kid is the day that you're on your knees before the Lord interceding for this child and you can keep at it. And Jesus said, this one only comes out by much prayer, by much prayer. You don't know how long you're going to have to pray. You don't know how often you're going to have to pray. You don't know how many times you're going to pray with tears rolling down your cheeks. But don't stop praying. The sweetest testimony is that my children are living for Christ. Young people that are in this room, look up at your old pastor here once. You don't know. Trust me. You have no idea what it will mean to your parents for them to know that you walk in obedience to the Word of God. It's the greatest gift you can give your parents is to surrender your life to Christ and walk in obedience to the Word of God. Even if they don't say anything, a parent has no greater joy than that their children walk in the truth, 3 John 4. The greatest joy of a parent's heart is to watch their children walking with Christ. Amen, parents? Greatest joy you can have. Greatest joy you can have. Sweetest testimony that my children are living for Christ. Well, there we are. There's the love of a father that is demonstrated in bringing his child to Christ and never giving up. Fathers, may the Lord give you hearts of love like that with your children. And I've learned, I've learned as my children become adults that your children are never too old that you stop loving them. Your children never get too old that you stop loving them. And so lead the way, Dad. Let's stand together. We're going to pray and close the service. Going to ask us to bow our heads first. I'm going to ask dads to examine their hearts right now. Let's just stand quietly for a minute. Dads especially and everybody else, I want you to ask yourself, am I really... Am I really doing all I can to get my child to Jesus? Am I, am I willing to put aside passivity? Am I willing to try to figure out how to do a better job as a dad? And just let the love that you have for Christ and the love you have for your wife and the love you have for your family drive you in pointing your kids to Christ. Are you willing to tell Christ right now, tell God right now, that that is the goal and intention of your heart. That you will be a dad whose heart of love is such that you love your child so much that you will seek to make this your greatest priority to get them to Christ. Tell God right now in your own heart and mind if that's your intent. So Father, thank you for this Wonderful story, our wonderful Lord Jesus, who spoke a word and cast out demons and healed epilepsy. Father, we have children that we hold up before you right now, God, and we ask for you to draw them unto yourself. And our grandkids, Lord, how quickly a generation goes by and the next generation doesn't follow Christ. And we long to see our children and our grandchildren and our great-grandchildren 
following Christ, would you help us all who have influence to make that our great priority, that our children will be in heaven with us one day. Help us, we pray. We need your help, and we ask for your help, and we pray in faith believing that you will answer prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Would you sit down really quick, stay quiet? Pastor Everett's going to give